Okay, let's pray. God, we turn to you right now and we ask that you would use this time to um, open our eyes to your truth, open our eyes to your truth about the world, open our eyes to your truth about our very own selves, and open our eyes to the truth of your great love for us in Jesus Christ, your only Son. And so we ask this in his name. Amen. So if you were here last week, you'll know that I started out with a spoiler alert and a disclaimer, and I will do the same thing today. I will tell you the ending of this movie. So you can, right now, I give you a get, you know, you can get out for free right now. If you just want to go and you don't want to know the ending to this film if you haven't seen it yet. But I think that it's still worth watching, even if you know the ending. So I will be talking a little bit about the ending. But I won't go quite as far as I did with Match Point and show you the ending, not the full ending at least. Um, and then my disclaimer is that it is, in fact, rated R. So just to keep that in mind, that, um, that it's rated R especially for language. And some of the language is kind of shocking. It's not just cussing. It's shocking. Um, but we're not going to listen to any of the shocking language. But there will be some language in some of the clips I show um, that's more just cussing. So I apologize in advance for that. It's too hard to cut around it because it's all throughout <coughs> the movie. So just fair warning, I do not endorse speaking like that. But <laughs> you never know. You have to. Um, so for those of you who were not here last week, we did talk a little bit about film and why would we even look at film as a way, you know, what, what, is there, what value is there in looking at film from a theological perspective? And um, I talked about narrative and stories themselves, how stories um, tell, allow us to hear the truth and receive the, the truth in a way that we might normally receive it. So um, if someone just were to point blank tell me they didn't like my jacket, I would just sort of, well, that's their problem, right? But if there, I was sort of led around in a way to see that maybe there was a better jacket for me to wear, then I would say, oh, maybe there is a better jacket for me to wear. Or there's a sense in which stories go around through the back door and get us to see some truth about the world, about our, our own selves. Um, and I, I used as my example last week, if you were here, please excuse me for doing it again, but that perfect example through in scripture of where a story itself is used to change someone's attitude about their own behavior. And you see it with King David. Do you remember after he's, um, he has committed adultery with Bathsheba, after he's led Uriah to be killed, um, he, the prophet comes to him and tells him the story about a man who had a little lamb and a, a, a poor man with one, one lamb and the rich man came and took that lamb from him and sacrificed it and the poor man was bereft of his only lamb and, um, and David exclaims when Nathan tells him this story and says how horrible that man should you know this this and this should be done to that man and then Nathan makes it clear to him isn't that what you've done with Bathsheba and Uriah? And that, that is when the truth hits him after he's received the story and heard the story and appreciated the story that Nathan tells. And that's when the truth about his own action um, is revealed to him. 
So there's a sense in which that, that fil film is a kind of storytelling, and storytelling allows us to see truth in a way that other kinds of communication don't allow us to see it. Um, in last week's film, in Match Point, we noticed that there was no justice given on earth, no external form of justice. Do you remember that, those of you that were there, that um, there was someone who committed some crimes and he did not get caught? And I did ask, you know, how does that make you feel? Do you, are you rooting for him not to get caught or do you want him to get caught? Is there a sense of satisfaction when he is in fact caught? Um, and I think, I found the latter personally and I asked you to sort of ask that question of yourself on your own and, and reflect about it because that kind of self-reflection can be really helpful. So I'd ask you to do the same thing with this one. We won't do it out loud. We won't do it on the tape. But as you go home this week to think about if you've seen the movie or if you haven't seen the movie, what are you rooting for? When you're, when you're watching a movie, it's always helpful to say afterwards, not while you're watching it, because if you're thinking, I find if I'm thinking too much while I'm watching a film, it's not the best film. The ones that are the best are the ones that capture my attention fully and wholly. And I think your attention will be captured by this one. It's totally engrossing. But afterwards, ask yourself, what did I want to have happen? What was I rooting for? And I would argue that this film is one, spoiler alert, where you, it's very satisfying. Because for most people, what you want to have happen, happens. You want the good guys to win. You want there to be justice on earth. You want there to be a sense in which um, you want you want um, the good guys to win, those who are aware of the needs of other people. Here we go. Let's see. There it goes. So um, turning then to um, well, first of all, about that, about justice in the in the bigger picture. That's why I titled this "Judgment on the Wide Screen," because there's uh, for us as individuals, God's law. We are judged by God's law in our hearts. Right when we look at um, when we look at Scripture, when we look at the Ten Commandments, as we prepare to confess our sins, the law judges us. We see ourselves against this standard, and we see how we don't measure up in our own way, and we feel judged by it as we should. And there is um, an outcome of that. We, that's a more personal judgment. That's a judgment. Um, for us as individuals. And yet in the bigger picture, judgment occurs. The law allows there to be judgment in the bigger picture. We see it in Jesus's, well, we see it in the Old Testament. Um, we see Jesus, uh, God being proclaimed as judge, the one who will judge between those whose actions are righteous and those whose actions are wicked. You see that throughout the Old Testament, leading up to Jesus' time, where Jesus talks specifically, remember the parable about the sheep and the goats, that on the last day there is a sense, in, there is a, an expected judgment when um, people will be judged, all the secrets will come to light. Um, so both Michael Clayton and Matchpoint look at these things that happen in secret. In Matchpoint, the secrets are left hidden. And one of the beautiful things about Michael Clayton is that uh, the secrets are exposed and brought out. We'll, get, we'll go back to that after we look at some of the movie, but uh, the movie itself is an action film. 
It's written by Tony Gilroy, who I, I had to find out more about him because off the top of my head, I hadn't really heard of him. He got a lot of acclaim for this film. It was nominated for seven Academy Awards, including Best Screenplay, Best Director, um, Best Picture, and then three, its three main actors were nominated for Academy Awards, and one of them won for Best Supporting Actress. Tilda Swinton won. And, and so the top three actors in this are incredible. And I would say especially Tilda Swinton and um, Tom Wilkinson are, have incredible performances. And I, the clips that I sh I'm going to show you today will not do justice to their performances. So it's the kind of thing where you, you kind of have to see it. Um, Tilda Swinton is, uh, her character plays the legal counsel for a very large chemical company. And she, so she's on the bankroll of the chemical company. She, she is their head counsel. And then the other characters are part of this law firm that works for the chemical company, whose bills are primarily paid by the legal fees from this one lawsuit that th this chemical company is engaged in. And the lawsuit is a class action lawsuit um, to, um, they're being sued by basically this whole town in the Midwest um, for having knowingly put out a carcinogenic chemical pesticide into their community. It's a, multi, it's a very wealthy corporation and the lawyers also, it says you hear that the main lawyer on their case, who's Tom Wilkinson's character, he has made $50 million in lawyer's fees over the six years that he's worked on the case. It seems like a lot to me. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and so the, that gives you a sense for the two characters. Tom Wilkinson's character is the main lawyer, lawyer on the case. And then um, Tilda Swinton's character, Karen, is the head counsel for the company. So what happens, but the film really focuses on the main character, which is George Clooney's character, Michael Clayton. Um, and it's interesting that Tony Gilroy, the writer who was nominated for Best Director, this appears to be his first major feature length film that he directed. And for that, I would say, in comparison with Matchpoint, it's not the kind of beautiful masterpiece that Matchpoint is, in which you know your heart is just continually moved by the images. You're drawn in by the images. This has a very little bit of it, but it, it, um, it's a more um, less experienced director. And yet, for his first, first big film direct, as a director, it's incredible. It's really worth watching, and he keeps the action going. It is also one of those that doesn't occur chrono chronologically. I don't know about you, but those ones always kind of get me, but I have to see them multiple times. So hopefully, I'll give you enough information that you only have to see it once. Um, so basically, it's fitting that this film is called Michael Clayton because it is the name of George Clooney's character, the main character. And the main character himself throughout this film, and the whole film asks the larger question, who is Michael Clayton? Who is he? And it's interesting, Gilroy, again, he wrote the Bourne movies. He wrote, wrote Bourne Identity. It's very interesting that he deals with identity issues again in this film. So we're going to look at the first clip this is one of the first scenes in the movie. The movie opens with a monologue by, um, by oh, I'll tell you in a minute. <clears throat> no, here. The movie opens with a monologue by Tom Wilkinson that is well worth the price of admission. 
he he should have won, I think. He's a very good actor. And when you hear this monologue, his character is on the verge of a breakdown and, in fact, has a breakdown in the course of the film. And so this monologue, you see, you see um, the, the genius of this actor in portraying this brilliant, mentally ill lawyer. Um, but now, back to Michael Clayton. This is the first scene where you really see what Michael Clayton does, who he is, and what he does for this law firm that he works for. Can you see it all right? Well, they did, you see, they changed the grade there. They uh, widened the street. I'm sure somebody told them that that was an improvement. But now, you see, when it rains and when there's fog and with this new angle and they've got these new, these, uh, these, uh, these sodium lamps, it's blinding. That corner right there, it is just blinding. Now they're going to have to work that out. Yeah, and it's not just tonight. I mean, I've been saying this for years. I mean, how many times have we talked about that corner? Dell. Mr. Greer, we don't have a lot of time here. Oh, so the circumstances, the, the road conditions, none of this holds any interest for you? What interests me is finding the strongest possible criminal attorney that can be here in the next 15 minutes. Well, that sounds ominous. We have some good relationships up here in Westchester. So what are you? What are you? You're not a lawyer? Not the kind you need. What kind is that? A trial lawyer. Somebody who can see this all the way through. That's not what I do. Okay. I think we're going to have to pull Walter back into this. I want to get Walter back on the phone. I want to get him back into the mix. Because uh, I'll be frank with you. I don't like the way this is going. Sir, we don't have time for Walter. Your options here are going to get smaller very quickly. What options? I'm not hearing any options. I'm suggesting that you go local, and I'm telling you that there's some people up here that I like for this. Oh, great. That's it? That's what you got for me? Hey, do you believe this? I have been a client at Kenderbach for 12 years. Do you think that I pay that retainer every month so I can have a place at the back of the line? Mr. Greer, you left the scene of an accident on a slow wheat night six miles from the state police barracks. Believe me, if there's a line, you're right up front. I can get a lawyer anytime I want to. I don't need you for that. We're not sitting here for 45 minutes waiting for a goddamn referral. I don't know what Walter promised you, but I can A miracle you. worker. That's Walter on the phone 20 minutes ago. Direct quote, okay? Hang tight. I'm sending you a miracle worker. Well, he misspoke. About what? About the fact that you're the firmest fixer? Or that you're any good at it? The guy was running in the street. You take that. You had the fog. You had the, 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 the lamps. You had the, the, the angle. What the fuck is he doing running in the middle of the street at midnight, huh? You answer me that. What is someone that's still in the car? Huh? Happens all the time. Cops like hit and runs. They work them hard, they clear them fast. Right now there's a BCI unit pulling paint chips off a guardrail. Tomorrow they're going to be looking for the owner of a custom-painted, hand-rubbed Jaguar XJ-12. And the guy you hit? You got to look at the plates? It won't even take that long. There's no play here. There's no angle, there's no champagne room. I'm not a miracle worker, I'm a janitor. The math on this is simple. The smaller the mess, the easier it is for me to clean up. What's the... Police, isn't it? No. They don't call it.
It's good, right? Very good acting, very good writing. Oh. I've already seen that. We don't need to see it again. Um, I love that scene, and I love how well it's written, and I love how well it's acted. And one thing just to notice as an actor watching this, and maybe maybe other people are noticing it, but what you see is this minor character, you only see him in this scene, Mr. Greer, he is it, he, he's in a mess, isn't he? He did something he really, sh he should not have left the crime. Hit and run, middle of the night, he left. And, um, and he's going to be in trouble with the law. And, and he is fighting it at every angle. He, he fights back with Michael Clayton, and he, you see him change his tactics. And as an actor, you're always doing something. Acting is doing, not being. As an actor, you're always doing something. And what he's doing, he changes his tactics with this person, Michael, to try and see. He starts to belittle Michael, right? Because he's not getting anywhere from him. He's not getting the champagne room, and he's wondering why not. And then he starts denigrating Michael himself. And that's where we get the question. And then you see, just in opposition to his angling and his changing of tactics very quickly, because then did you hear how after he gets, he doesn't get anywhere with trying to pick on Michael. Then he starts to say, he starts to go back into um, manipulation mode. He starts to lie. What if the car was stolen? Right. He is trying to avoid the consequences of his actions. He is at a point of, um, of, of tr facing reality. And at the end of the scene, he faces reality. It's very well done, very interesting to watch. Um, then Michael himself is cool as a cucumber. You can tell he's done this before. He's done this a lot of times before. He's, he's not riled up by this man's belittling, belittling of him. But the questions that are asked of Michael are questions that pertain to the whole movie. I was promised a miracle worker. Is he a miracle worker? What he does is, for the firm, he is the problem solver. When there's a problem that they need to have fixed, he goes in and fixes it. He knows so much about so many different areas of the law that each lawyer in their niche needs someone with the broader picture, and he has the broader picture. So whenever there's a problem that um, someone, like Walter is the lawyer on, who's on his retainer, but doesn't know what to do with this hit and run in Westchester. So they call in Michael to come in and figure it out. Um, so he's called a miracle worker. Then uh, he, he's actually called the fixer. That's what Walter said in exaggeration about him. He's the firm's fixer. And then the question is, are you any good at it? And that actually probably lands, because this scene occurs four days before the rest of the film. So you start in with the rest of the film. And um, after this scene, you begin to see the rest of the film and why he's at a low point, why he's been failing in his job of fixing. And he has indeed been failing in his job of fixing. And we'll find out more about that. But then the word that he says is janitor. No, I'm the janitor. I clean up the messes. And he got that word from Tom Wilkinson's character. Tom Wilkinson's character later on in the film, which actually occurs earlier in time, so confusing, <laughs> right? Um, er, occurs earlier in time, Tom, Tom suggests that to him. You're actually a janitor, and so am I. We're cleaning up the messes of humanity, essentially. Um, so then uh, what happens prior to this scene in, in time is that Arthur, Tom Wilkinson's character has gone off the deep end. Remember, he's working on that big case with the, uh, with the chemical company. He, he loses it. He stops taking his medication. 
and he starts having a crisis of conscience about what he is doing in defending the actions of this chemical company. So um, he essentially, he has been, um, he's brilliant, of course, um, and he has essentially had this breakdown where during a deposition, he started undressing. And it ends up that he started running around this parking lot in Milwaukee in the middle of winter naked. And so it looks really bad for the law firm. It looks really bad for the chemical company. And they have a problem that they need. To, this one is almost funnier than Matchpoint, isn't it? When you look at the circumstances, they need the fixer to be brought in. So of course, Michael Clayton goes to Milwaukee. And this is where um, he enters. He goes to the jail. Of course, the um, Tom Wilkinson's character is in the jail. And he goes in to see him. And what we're going to see now, because it's a higher resolution, I'm going to play this clip that's part interview with Tom Wilkinson, so bear with it. But then it will show you two scenes with Michael Clayton and Tom Wilkinson's character, where you get a sense for um, the back and forth, how Michael's trying to fix what's going on with Arthur, trying to get him back on his medication so that they can win the case um, and the law firm can look good. And, um, and you get a sense, too, that, that Michael actually cares for Arthur. He respects him and likes him. I'm in a lucky position in that I tend, you know, I can to, not to some extent, to some extent, choose the sort of scripts I want to do. And there is no question this is one of the best scripts. He's I've a British actor, ever. very well trained, very well known, very good. Perfect Anna and her dead parents and her dying brother. When was the last time you took one of these? No, 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 no. I'm not losing this. Everything is not finally significant. The world is a beautiful and radiant place. I'm not trading that for this. If it's real, the pill won't kill. I have blood on my hands. You are the senior litigating partner of one of the largest, most respected law firms in the world. You are a legend. I'm an accomplice. You are a man I depress it. I am Shiva, the god of death. I thought it would be a very catchy little movie to do. Big movie to do. Michael, I have great affection for you, and you lead a very rich and interesting life, but you're a bad man, not an attorney. If your intention was to have me committed, you should have kept me in Wisconsin, where the arrest report, the videotape, eyewitness accounts of my inappropriate behavior would have had jurisdictional relevance. I have no criminal record in the state of New York, and the single determining criterion for involuntary incarceration is danger. Is the defendant a danger to himself or others? You think you got the horses for that? Well, good luck and God bless, but I tell you this. The last place you want to see me is in court. I'm not the enemy. Then who are you? Isn't that good? I'm not the enemy, then who are you? We get back to the questions of identity, right? He's challenging Michael Clayton. He has picked his side, and he's no longer on the side of the law firm that they both work for. And that's the problem. He's also on a manic high, so he just bought all the bread from a bakery. And he, <laughs> he did. That's what he has in his hand. He has a big bag full of French, French um, baguette. And then he also, he had escaped from Milwaukee. Michael had him contained in this hotel room, and um, Arthur tricked him and got out of the hotel room and got back to New York on his own. And they've been looking for him all over. Um, so there's, again, great dialogue, great writing. Again, this theme of Michael's identity comes back forth, uh, forth to the front. What side are you on? If you're not the enemy, then whose side are you on? 
Um, and meanwhile, while Arthur has escaped from Milwaukee and come back to New York, um, Karen, the head counsel at the chemical company, has then um, had her guy start to follow Arthur. She doesn't trust Michael and she needs some help and she wants to make sure that this is contained. Um, and so Tilda Swinton is, is a wonder, she's a great actor. She's the one who won um, for this. And um, we're not gonna watch this. You, you have to contain them. Contain? Can you hear it all right? Well, that's my question. You know what? We're not gonna be able to hear it on this one. Hang on. Some of these clips are better than others, and you have to go with the best audio and the best picture, right? Um, so this one is just, um, you see, you'll see Karen, and she's talking with the guy that she has following <laughs> Arthur's character. And you see a little bit of her dilemma. This is the point of the decision for her, where she decides what to do about this troublesome Arthur. This is the moment, this is the moment where um, she must decide what to do. And what's so amazing about Tilda is that she portrays this character compassionately. You can, she's not just this bad guy who makes this decision to, um, she does, well, it, she's not a bad guy in the sense that you see her humanity, you see all of her neuroses. And Tony Gilroy does a great job of catching some of her neuroses and in action, and they're, they're some of my favorite scenes. I, I, it was hard to find clips of them, but there are these amazing moments where she's rehearsing what to say as the big lawyer in this big corporation. She practices it all the time. She's obsessed with this job of hers, and she'll do anything to do it right. Easy. You, you have to contain this. Contain? Right. Well, that's my question. What are the, what's the option that we're looking at along those lines? You're talking about the paper, the data? Well, I'm wondering if there is some other option. I mean, something I'm not thinking of. We deal in absolutes. Okay. I understand that. I do. We chew the papers. I'm not a lawyer. We, we, we try. We... Do what we can. Well, the other way. It's the other way. Maybe we're with Don on this. No, this has nothing to do with Don. He's busy. Don is her mentor. Do you think it's doable? Yeah, we have some good ideas. You say move, we move. The ideas don't look so good, we back off, reassess. Okay. Is that okay? You understand or okay, proceed. I've, I've been speaking to... Okay, you understand or okay, proceed. And that's where the scene ends. But you see that she had given the nod. And um, those, those guys go and kill Arthur and make it look like a suicide. It's very sad. Um, and Michael is changed by it. He begins to believe some of the things that Arthur was telling him. Arthur was telling him all along, no, this company really is guilty. No, they're tapping my phone. And they really were tapping his phone. And Michael finds out, in fact, that they were actually 
tapping his phone and that um, he finds out some more information that leads him to believe that it wasn't actually a suicide, but maybe it was a murder. And so Michael is in this tizzy. He doesn't know what to think. He doesn't know who he is. He doesn't know what side he's on. And essentially, he's also at this point in his life where he doesn't have the equity that he would have had if he had made a part, been made a partner. Here he is, this bag man. He doesn't earn as much. He's in financial difficulty. His family, his brother is a cop. And his brother says to the, him, you got all these cops thinking you're a lawyer. Then you got all these lawyers thinking you're some kind of cop. You got everybody fooled, don't you? Everybody but you. You know exactly what you are. And that lands, that sinks in. And so he has this moment, and the movie is bookended by the scene. It's shown twice. He has this moment where he can change who he is. And it's not through any strength of his own or any um, choice of his own. Michael. Oh, it's not this one. Dear Michael, of course it's you. This is the opening monologue, which is good, and you should see too. Oh no, you know what it was? It was back here. He's driving in Westchester. He sees this image that reminds him of a picture in his son's book. And he gets out of his car in the middle of the morning, or early dawn. Oh no, that's playing again. Isn't that powerful? That is probably one of that's probably my, one of my t top two favorite moments in the whole film, and it, the scene is shown twice. So he, the image from the book of his son. The book is called Summons to Conquest, and it's one of those books that all little boys love. And um, but in that book, it talks about he talks about these people all having the same dream. This be, and that they're summoned to this place. There's this message brought to them from outside of themselves. And I think that the picture that he sees in the book that lodges in his brain actually becomes this summons to get out of his car at dawn in the winter and go up this hillside to see these strange horses. It's, it's 
it's a deus ex machina, God from outside coming in. There is this sense in which there is this outside force drawing him out of his car without explanation. There's no explanation for this given. I'm giving you my hypothesis about the book and about it being an outside summons to get out of his car. And the horses save his life, don't they? He's brought out of the car by them. I love that there's three of them since we believe in a Trinitarian God. And it's that moment when um, these people trying to kill him press the button and explode his car. What you see the second time you see this scene is that he goes and he puts his watch in the car, he puts his cell phone in the car, he puts his wallet in the car, he makes this split-second decision because he knows he was someone trying to kill him. And he knows that they're probably going to check to make sure it really happened. He puts his whole identity in that car and then he jets into the forest. He just starts running in the forest. And so that moment is when everything changes for him. He essentially dies at that moment and is given this chance for a new life. He's, he dies, um, and I think that this um, little moment of death and rebirth, death and new life, is amazing because it's different from Woody Allen. Remember, we were talking last week about Woody Allen's um, fear of death and his obsession with the transience of life, and that his philosophy then meant that, well, if life is transitory, then do whatever works to distract you during this life because it's short. That's Woody Allen's philosophy. Do whatever it takes that um, a brush with death can only send you into a spiral of despair or into hedonism as a response to try and put off that truth about the meaninglessness and transience of life. This is entirely different. This is an entirely different philosophy and approach to life. Even though we don't know a whole lot about the worldview of the director or anything from this film, uh, there's not as much to go on as there was with Matchpoint. But it, it is completely different. Michael Clayton, at this moment of death, he is now free. And I'd like to say that's just like us. That moment when we come to the realization, when we die, when it gets so bad that nothing goes our way, that we, have, we are so overwhelmed, as Andrew said this morning, we're so overwhelmed by the waters, by the fire encroaching, approaching us, that we give up that moment of surrender and that moment is actually a moment of death because essentially we're dying to this sense of control over our circumstances even this sense of control over our own holiness our own inner moral health when we die and say I give up I, I, I can't be righteous um, perfectly the way I ought to be to be in relationship with a holy God it's at that moment when we turn in repentance and turn to Jesus Christ, who is himself the true judge and the truly righteous man, the only righteous man. It's at that point of surrender, repentance, and turning that we are then reborn, that we find new life, that we become new men and new women. So even as we are judged, there is then that hope of freedom in turning to Jesus Christ. And that's what makes, he becomes a different man. He's a completely different man, and um, let's see if I can find it. I'm going to show you part of the last scene, but not all. Don't worry, I won't show you all of the last scene. Uh, 
This is, um, we're back with Karen. She has just given this final speech to the board at the company saying that they're going to settle. It's gotten so bad, she did try to kill Michael Clayton. She did try to have him killed. It was her who gave the word also for his car to be exploded. Um, and here is some, a moment of judgment for her. Do it. That's a great place to start. Let's find out who told yeah, him that Arthur was calling Anna Kaiser. It jumped. Technology. Okay. Well. There she goes. Right? She thinks she's seeing a ghost. I'm kidding. Might not. You got one of these? It's a great memo. It's an oldie but a goodie. I got your heart racing, don't I? I don't know what the hell it is you think you're doing. What do you think I'm doing? This is over. We have a deal. Whatever that is, it's uh, meaningless at this point. You think? I must have gotten that wrong. I thought you had a tentative proposal. I didn't realize you'd signed all those checks. It's a drag. I got a thousand of these things. What the hell am I going to do with them? I'm calling Marty. Good. Good. Do it. That's a great place to start. Let's find out who told him that Arthur was calling Anna Kaiserson. Let's find out who tapped those phones. This, this memorandum, even if it's authentic, which I doubt, I highly... I know what you did to Arthur. It's protected. It belongs to you, North. I know you killed him. It's a cut-and-dry case of attorney-client. See, now, that's just not the way to go here, Karen. For such a smart person, you really are lost, aren't you? This conversation is over. I'm not the guy that you kill. I'm the guy that you buy. Are you so fucking blind you don't even see what I am? I'm the easiest part of your whole goddamn problem and you're gonna kill me? Don't you know who I am? I'm a fixer. I'm a bag man. I do everything from shoplifting housewives to bent congressmen and you're gonna kill me? What do you need? Karen, lay it on me. You want a carry permit? You want a heads up on an insider trading subpoena? I sold out Arthur for 80 grand and a three-year contract, and you're going to kill me? What do you want? What do I want? I want more. I'll leave the last little bit for you to see on your own. But it's good. And there's this sense of satisfaction, even just in that moment. Did you see how he was going after her and her fear when she saw him? so interesting that we have two movies um, one week after another where there are these ghosts that people see that um, cause them to feel judgment and condemnation justly so for their crimes and the crimes include murder um, so we have just a little bit of time left and um, any questions about this about how judgment plays out on the big screen in his life in our lives or any questions about the film I will say, with the comment about his family, I do think that from this point on, he's identified which side he's on, and his older brother takes comfort in that, knowing that he's not 
on the side of the big company, but rather he's um, he's out there to find out the truth and to work for justice. Uh, and I, I would say that's also a good thing at the end of the movie, that you see some resolution and um, and some closure on that. It is a kind of redemption story. I do think it is as troubling as it can be throughout it. And there are many plot points that I didn't discuss, so hopefully it'll still be interesting when you go to see it. Um, but it is a story of redemption. And that's why I chose to do it second, because the first story that we saw last week, Matchpoint, is not a story of redemption. The main character is left at the end of it, self-justifying, telling himself that he had to do what he had to do in order to live the life that he'd always dreamed of. And here we find someone who um, is essentially Karen's character is justifying herself to, um, in her mind and to those around her. And here she's found out and caught. Um, the, the, there is the sense in which justice exists in this earth, and we can be glad for that. God is both just and the justifier. And that comes from Romans 3.26. God is both just, there is judgment, for sin, because sin hurts other people, and God doesn't like that, right? So God is both just, that there is judgment, and he is also the justifier, because he takes delight in um, allowing his own righteousness and the righteousness of his son Jesus to stand for those who turn to Jesus in faith. So for us, as we stand in Karen's shoes, in Chris's shoes from last week, whether our sins are as egregious as theirs, or whether they are more pernicious and quiet, whether they are only known um, in our inner hearts like Chris's, they are things too that we can turn to God with, knowing that, um, that if we don't, we will be judged at the last day. And yet as we do turn to him and turn to Jesus Christ in faith, Jesus' own righteousness stands for us and we are received by God um, through Jesus Christ. So let's um, let's pray quickly and then we'll go in peace. Again, God, we thank you. You are both just and the justifier. You are just and there is order in your universe and we can trust that you exist and you are good because you defend the weak and the powerless and those who have been victims of violence and sin. And yet we also know that you are the justifier and you justify all those who turn to you through faith in your son, Jesus Christ. And so once again, we say, we believe, help our unbelief. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.